All right, team, it's time for round two. We're diving deeper into our 2023 outlook and covering the R word, recession. Is it coming? What will it look like? How can we invest through it? Here's what matters for 2023. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of December 12th, 2022. And last week, we covered what is different about the current economic cycle, namely the stubbornness of inflation, a lack of policy support, and geopolitical risk. Today, I'm back with Julia and Michael. Hello, team. Hello. Hi. And we'll discuss where these points of difference land us for 2023. And that's likely in recession territory. Our listeners' response to this is probably something like, wait, aren't we already in a recession? We got this question dozens of times this year, and for good reasons, which we're going to discuss today. This episode is not meant to depress anyone over the holidays, almost the opposite. As we always say, there are always opportunities in the market, and this cycle is no different even in a recession scenario. So this week and next week, we'll be equipping our listeners with actionable investment ideas, both to consider right now and also to add or consider adding as the cycle turns. Quick plug, you can read all of these investment ideas on our website under the insights tab or follow any of the three of us on LinkedIn where we've shared links to all of our stuff. All right. Now back to the question that Julia just raised on behalf of our clients. Are we already in recession? Can feel like it, but the answer is technically no. Yeah. A formal recession is defined by a broad decline across economic indicators. So as we discussed last week, the labor market has not cracked. And when hundreds of thousands of jobs are being created every month, it's really hard to argue that there's a recession. But households are feeling the crunch. So Michael, do you want to hit us with some of the data on what households are actually feeling? It's simple. Incomes, aka wages, have not kept up with the cost of living for well over a year. By this, we mean real wages, adjusted for inflation, are at negative 2.7% and have been negative since April 2021, a staggeringly long amount of time and not seen since 2012. But on the flip side, consumer spending data has held up super well considering. There's got to be a gap there. Yep, and that gap is being filled by savings. Personal savings rates have absolutely plummeted and are now below pre-pandemic levels at just 2.3%. For context, this is the lowest since 2005, and this number spiked to nearly 35% during COVID from the long-term average of 8.8%. Also, consumer sentiment indicators are near all-time lows, and the idea of having to draw down savings to cover spending explains why people feel so pessimistic. So we're not in a recession, but the environment feels terrible to a lot of people. Looks like stagflation, walks like stagflation. Yeah, it probably is stagflation. My one caveat here is that stagflation brings back visions of gasoline lines and 8% unemployment from the 70s and 80s. So maybe it's more appropriate to call this type of environment stagflation light. 
Regardless of the terminology, the pressure on households has been steadily growing this year. So our team constructed an index of this pain, this market and economic pain, building off the elegant but horribly named misery index, I'm quoting there, which adds together inflation and unemployment rates to get a sense of how bad things feel for households. So we also added in mortgage rates to get a sense of interest rate rises, and the 12-month rolling returns of benchmark stock and bond indexes. So this has helped us to visualize what we already knew, which is that things have been getting worse very steadily for over a year. So I don't think we're telling our listeners anything that they aren't already feeling themselves. We can all see these inflationary pressures in our day-to-day. But thank you for putting a finer point on the how and why. I think it's a good time then to pivot on how companies are doing in this stagflation light type environment. Comparatively to households, companies seem to be doing better. They are doing a killer job of managing their top and bottom lines. Profit margins and earnings estimates for the S&P 500 reached a peak during the pandemic because companies gained pricing power and both are just starting to turn into a declining trend. On the supply side, though, for companies, things have felt less manageable. We all know about the supply chain pressures that dominated 2020 and 2021, and these impeded companies' ability to build up inventories. We saw this in sectors like vehicles, durables, even food supplies. And that supply chain stress has eased, leading some sectors into a full-blown purchasing glut now. But consumer demand for goods like furniture and electronics is starting to slow. All right, so we have a bit of a mixed bag today. Both consumers and companies have been resilient to these inflationary pressures. They've been holding on. They've been doing what they can to bridge the gap. But we have an outlook now. We're looking ahead. Economic activity, meaning activity from these consumers and businesses, is likely to slow. But our silver lining for our recession scenario rests in what Julia and Michael have just laid out. There aren't huge imbalances in the economy that a recession needs to correct this time around, as was the case in the last several economic cycles. In this case, household and corporate debt levels are both near 20-year lows. And that contributes to our view that the coming recession might be more shallow than some that we've recently experienced. But a shallow recession is still recession, and volatility and risk premia are likely to remain elevated as long as the Fed is fighting inflation in a growth slowdown. So that takes us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea, or as is the case this week and next, many investment ideas. Folks, we named our outlook the new recession playbook for a reason. We have got you covered. Today, we want to zone in on what we're calling all-weather strategies, the areas of positioning that lend themselves to resilience and defensiveness, and they can suit all points of the cycle, including, in our view, right now. Our three favorites are value equities, infrastructure equities, and commodities. We'll take you through each. So first, value equities. We've talked about them nonstop this year, and that's because they deliver on three of our favorite themes for an economic cycle that's defined by high inflation and below trend growth. And those qualities are defensiveness, quality, and income. Quality can seem like a vague term, but we can actually define it quite specifically by several metrics, including low earnings variability, high profitability, and healthy interest coverage of debt. 
Value equities far outshine growth when it comes to earnings variability. Growth companies, though, tend to have higher profit margins. The twist there is that value equities still perform better when it comes to free cash flow yield in the post-pandemic era. So what this is doing, that free cash flow is supporting value equities' ability to deliver a higher dividend yield to shareholders than growth equities are. All right, value equities, check. Next idea, infrastructure equities. Infrastructure equities are a really compelling way to diversify core exposure, and they have a really unique solution to qualms that investors might have about investing in real assets as financing costs are rising. So on the revenue side, infrastructure equities cash flows are often linked to inflation, and on the cost side, inflation protection is often written into long-term contracts. So some of the similar qualities that we described for value equities, although I'd say one major difference in this investment idea about infrastructure equities is that many investors don't have a standing allocation to infrastructure equities. And so we asked the question, how should you think about that in a portfolio? And Michael, you've done so much work on exactly how investors might approach that question, adding infrastructure equity exposure. Take us through it. Sure. Infrastructure equities exhibit less volatility historically than the overall equity market. So it's possible to hold a larger allocation without exceeding your desired risk limit. Our analysis supports a portfolio allocation of up to 15%, depending on the risk profile, but 10% might be optimal. Specifically, taking 10% from the equity sleeve of the 60-40 portfolio structure leaves you with 50% stocks, 40% bonds, and 10% infrastructure. This combination has resulted in higher risk-adjusted returns, lower volatility, and lesser drawdowns than the normal 60-40 model. Super interesting. All right, infrastructure then. Check. Next up on the list, our last idea for today is commodities. Julia, what's your case? Look, Lauren, let's, let's just be honest here. If this was a typical economic cycle, commodities would be considered a high beta play on economic growth, and they would not be our preferred asset class to hold on the way down. But as we talked about last week, this cycle is different. And in this cycle, commodities have a bunch of tailwinds at their back. First off, there's the war in Ukraine covering things for the near term, disrupting supply, keeping prices elevated. And then there's also the war in Ukraine if we think about the long term. By that, I mean that the invasion has made a pretty ironclad case for energy independence for Western economies. So this can be bullish for commodities, whether the goal is accomplished through investment in traditional capacity, which would be bullish energy, or green capacity, which would be bullish metal and mineral inputs, or a combination. A tour de force. Let's see if we can land this home because similar to what we described in infrastructure equity, commodities, not always a main holding in an investment portfolio. So Michael, once again, can you tell us how we should think about that in a broader portfolio context? We found that for a multi-asset investor, an allocation between 1% and 7% to commodities, depending on the risk profile, can improve risk-adjusted investment returns while reducing the volatility of those returns. As with infrastructure, our work suggests that investors should consider sourcing a commodity-specific allocation from the equity portion of the traditional 60-40 portfolio. For a moderately conservative investor, a 5% commodity satellite leaves 55% in stocks and 40% in bonds. Just like in our infrastructure example, this method has resulted in higher risk-adjusted returns, lower volatility, and lesser drawdowns than the normal 60-40 model. Really interesting, solid takeaways today, team, on both the why and the how in our portfolio pause. I love it. Thank you both so much for joining. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. 
coming up next. Next week, we're going to expand this awesome positioning conversation with which asset classes are our high conviction buys for as the economic cycle turns throughout 2023. If today is what we're doing now, next week is going to be what we have our eye closely on for the new year. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.